When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On Commons People this week, Brexit talks begin again. A load of bunkum baloney and codswallop. <laughs> Priti Patel endures a week of torrid headlines. I, I simply do not recognise the, uh, the commentary and the false uh, accusation. And the former Chancellor takes aim at number 10. It has always been the case that advisers advise, ministers decide. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hello. And we've got Priti Patel's former special advisor James Starkey joining us. Hi Arj. How are you doing James? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Enjoying life outside the government? It was much more relaxing, I can tell you that. Yeah, sure is. Uh, well, the phony war is over and we finally have the UK and EU's goals for the next stage of Brexit negotiations. Boris Johnson's hardline position this morning made clear he's willing to walk away from the talks without a trade deal as early as June. And he won't commit to publishing any kind of government estimate of the cost to jobs and businesses. The SNP's Pete Wishart was unimpressed. Here he is. A load of bunkum baloney and codswallop. This is nothing other than a route map to the cherished no deal, the real ambition of these Brexit zealots over there. They're even now prepared to break international law in order to achieve this outcome. Uh, Paul, you've been looking into this today. What do you make of it? Well, we had a briefing this morning from the government and it was very helpful because it got across to us just how uh, hardline the government are going to be in these talks. You talked about a phony war, but actually I think the feeling in number 10 is that, that this isn't a, some sort of negotiating position. This is actually, we're serious, we mean it. You know, if we don't get what we want, we're perfectly prepared to walk away. And I think part of the, end, the calculation of that is that actually the Canada deal, the free trade deal that they're talking about, really in the real world may not be that much different from WTO terms, from, from effectively what used to be called no deal. Because the, the government were quite clear to, with us that actually um, frictionless trade is you know, not possible. Um, there will be friction. There's going to have to be new infrastructure at the ports and, and the whole of the year is going to be spent properly gearing up for that. And I suppose if you're a business, you, at least you've got the certainty now that actually, look, the worst case scenario is what you really should be planning for. And anything beyond that is a bonus. Um, so that was what was quite interesting. But, you know... Yeah. Mean, James, what do you make of that? I mean, I think one of the things that I know was kind of being discussed in government in the past few months was that... Um, and we've seen this with immigration, obviously, an area I know probably slightly more about. But the, we, I think there's a, people in government want businesses to have an idea of what's going to happen. And uh, certainly... And whether I was in and out of government uh, over the last three years, working in DEFRA and in the private sector a little bit, a constant you would get when you met businesses, which is, we just want to know what's going on. Um, there, there was a certain group of businesses that, are, that maybe are more pro or anti in the same way as the population. But much like most people, it's just like, just tell us what's going on. And so I think if there's a kind of clear steer, which is, here is what's going to happen, 
you know, in that area of immigration, we now know it's going to be much more difficult for low-skilled migrants to come in the country. And I think overall, it's going to be easier, in fact, if you're high-skilled to come in the country. Well, businesses can now plan for that. So I think that's, that's something that many of them will say, well, that's all we can ask. And, and I think now they're getting it. And I think that's, that's true, that, that certainty really matters. But the one problem we had today was that actually, where was the, was the government actually playing hardball or were they, was it an act? I personally, for months now, ever since he won the general election, before the general election, you think Boris Johnson really means this and Europe should basically start listening to him instead of thinking this is all, all a bit of a, you know, some great grand diplomatic game, um, that he really does believe it. The, the thing that struck me this morning was um, they kept talking about how this political declaration, which they, Boris Johnson had signed up to last year, and has he actually broken his word? Has he gone back on this idea of level playing field? Um, and the message we got from government is actually no, uh, because we agreed one single paragraph in this agreement last year, uh, and it's paragraph 77, I've got it written down, which says there will be robust commitments to ensure a level playing field. That's the only reference to it. Yeah. But... Europe, instead of just doing one reference to it, have done, mentioned it 20 times in their own negotiating mandates. Yeah. So they're trying to expand it. And number 10 clearly feel the only people who are moving away from what was agreed is Europe, not us. We're sticking to a very narrow, limited definition of this, which fits with Canada, and it doesn't fit with what you want. Yeah, and the EU have badmouthed that political declaration for, yeah. for the whole of the first stage negotiations. But uh, Rachel, what do you... Um, well, I just think if, you're, if you run a business and you hear the words that we could be leaving with no deal in uh, June, I think you must just be so fed up at this point. You must be absolutely done in. Um, but I think a sign of how serious they are is uh, how the government's trying to manage how no deal is now talked about. Um, you know, we know that all Conservatives have been told to say 2019 deal and not no deal. So that kind of gives you a sign that they potentially are very serious about it because they want the public to start seeing it as a real prospect as well and a, a desirable thing. Uh, James, you kind of work with Vote Leave and you're close to that team and number 10. Mm. What is the ultimate goal of putting up trade barriers? What, what is the ultimate goal of the Brexit that they're seeking? Well, uh, you mentioned putting up trade barriers. I think there needs to be some realism. The country voted to leave. Um, well, I think we may have heard that once or twice before. <laughs> um, the country voted to leave. And I, I think as some of, the, some of the sounds now coming out of government are... Clearly, there will be some changes on the border. Um, and again, that goes back to the certainty issue. But I think in terms of putting up trade barriers, as you said, it depends how you look at these things. I think one of the... Look, immigration was a big part of the Leave campaign, but people wanted fundamental change. And I think one of the frustrations over the past few years has not just been from government, which is what, what kind of deal we're going to get is, but where are we going? Like, what's your overall outlook? And I think if you remember in that first year, perhaps when Nick Timothy was in Downing Street, it felt like you had a kind of idea where things are going. I think you can criticise this government in any which way you want. What it does feel like is with Dominic and Boris Johnson in number 10 is, I think they have a clear idea of what they want the country to be. You know, we've seen... Um, one of the things I worked on, you know, kind of expedition of uh, uh, science yeah. visas, allowing those kinds of people to come in and having a focus on that, those kinds of sectors. And so the deal needs to match that. So instead of thinking about it as, as in a sense of, like, what's the deal in isolation, what the deal should always have been is we've now left the EU. Rights and wrongs of that are effectively are gone. It's been done. We have left the EU. We're going to have to have a different relationship with them. Where are we going as a country? And therefore, once you've got that decided, what deal best helps that to happen? And so I think that um, what there hasn't been yet, I think, I think from some businesses and from the EU itself, 
and dare I say it perhaps sometimes from some in the press, a, f a full reorientation about what kind of government we've got. We have, a, we have the strongest, we haven't had a government with this kind of majority for a decade. You know, we're all used to a different kind of government. You know, you kind of talk about, I remember in the first few weeks we talked about, oh, you know, Labour are going to put down this and that. That doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. They don't have anywhere the num <laughs> near the numbers yeah. to get that through. Um, it, so you kind of read it and you see it as a prominent story in the press and you think, guys, you haven't really realised what's going on here. <laughs> and so I think it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that you have a, um, a few members of the vote lead, but forget that. Boris Johnson's the Prime Minister. Boris Johnson resigned over checkers. I, I think quite rightly, but that should give you... It shouldn't be a surprise about where he lands on these kinds of issues. He wants divergence. He doesn't want the yeah. same rules. But that's what's interesting. I mean, it's worth mentioning that actually the US and China both deal on WTO terms with the EU. That, that's a fact. And so a lot of Brexiteers are saying, so what have we got to be scared of? Yeah, of course we want a close relationship. But it doesn't seem to be harming the US, doesn't seem to be harming China. They've, they've, they're attempting to get better trade deals and trade access, but they're independent countries, and that's what Britain should be like as well. The downside, I think, is that actually, unlike them, Britain depends so much on European trade. And obviously... The big question I think Brexiteers have yet to really grasp is, Philip Hammond said it, but lots of other people have said it, that the estimate of the boost to GDP of having independent trade deals is something like 0.02% mm. to GDP. It's That's tiny. Right. Yeah. Whereas getting the right European uh, trade deal is really massively important in terms of how much money this country gets in and, and for jobs and business. So... I, I think that's the problem. There seems to be quite a lot of focus, quite rightly. Look, people voted for sovereignty, but there's been no explanation, actually. Well, you might have. Yeah. And if you want these other deals, then you might have to take a bit of an economic hit. And Michelle Barney has already kind of pointed this out, hasn't he, when, when Boris has said, we want something like the Canada trade deal. He's kind of said, well, you're not Canada. You know, our service industry is, like, mm. much more closely I mean, bound I, together. Just, just, can I make two points? Cool. Sorry. There's two points there. I think the Canada one's interesting because we were told for two, three years, oh, we are not going to get a bespoke deal. Stop trying to cherry pick. Here's the deals on the table, Canada, Norway, etc. Pick one of them. Well, the government comes in and says, OK, we're going to pick Canada. And the first thing they say is, oh, you can't have Canada. You're not Canada. <laughs> so uh, on... on yeah. And I don't say that as to say that this is... This, I don't say... I mean, I've never met Michel Barnier, but I don't say that in a sense to say, oh, the EU are bad. This is part of a negotiation. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's going to be game playing on both sides. I'm not saying that's unique to them. But I would take that slightly with a pinch of salt, given they spent the first two years telling us to pick one of them and produced a slide deck which said, that's one of the ones we can pick mm -hmm. within the first year. So I find that a bit ridiculous. On the... Um, on the kind of, as you said, the trade deal on the GDP, I get your point, and we've all seen the modelling, um, some of it officially and some of it probably somewhat unofficially, maybe even on the Huffington Post a, a couple of years ago. <laughs> but um, the, I think, as I said, I think one of the things that I think people on the Leave side would argue is you can look at what the trade deal does, but the benefit of... There are solid economists um, who... Uh, wouldn't necessarily be on the leave side, that would point out the benefits of trade deals aren't necessarily getting cheap T-shirts from China, cheap chicken from America. They're what it does to your own economy. It's boosting productivity, innovation. You know, we need... A, we, with, the, with the cost of the labour in this country, you're, you're, you're going to make value where you have um, intellectual property and you develop... Uh, more luxury items. That's what it's going to be. We're not. You are never. We are never going to compete with massively, you know, India and China, which has huge populations, large access to 
um, low wage, frankly, labour. You're not going to compete with that. And I think trade deals, the benefit a lot of people that I would talk to would say is it's, what, it's how it boosts your own economy rather than just the trade deal itself. Yeah, well, that's a good point. But, I mean, still, if you're a business and you're saying, well, how does this affect my bottom line? You're, you're going to worry about tariffs, obviously, and it's not just of course. the car industry. There will be short-term um, pain, basically. Well, yeah. well, where do you think the sort of inevitable compromise is? Well, I, I think if uh, fundamentally, um, and I remember vividly because we used it regularly, Stuart Rose saying during the Leave campaign, you know, what they said in a parliamentary committee, what's going to happen if we work to leave? And he said, well, wages will rise. I think the thing is, Stuart Rose came from a big company and thought that was a bad thing. And most people in the country <laughs> thought, oh, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> so um, I think uh, I say that on the serious point is, if, if your business fundamentally, if you're making money because you're not paying people very much, then I think you've got a problem. Um, and I think it's, and, and you'll, you will need to look at how... But I guess businesses you, would then come back and say, well, that just means fewer jobs then as well. Well, perhaps in their sector, but that's because they built a business on low-wage economy. If they haven't built a business on paying people little money, they wouldn't have a problem. And, and often I would make the point, and this is sometimes where you can talk to people on the left and have agreement, which is what they are doing, they are often relying on the welfare side of things to prop up their... If you're... If you're there are, there, of course, are individuals, and quite rightly, they use it as a kind of path, um, universal credit or some element of that, to, to kind of moving back from maybe it's unemployment or whatever to full employment. But if your business is based on the fact, I can pay people a low amount of money because they're going to get topped up by the state, and if that's essentially your business plan, at least for the workers, then I think you're probably in a bad situation. I don't think most people... Certainly in the long term, I'm going to complain that that disappears. Well, as the government put the finishing touches to its Brexit plan, James's old boss, Priti Patel, found herself enduring a week of damaging headlines. The Home Secretary is at war with her own officials and apparently wants Permanent Secretary Sir Philip Rutnam removed from the Home Office. She's also facing claims of bullying staff, several of whom have been forced to leave under her tenure. Patel's poor deputy, James Brokenshaw, was sent out to defend her this week. Here he is. I simply do not recognise the, uh, the commentary and the false uh, accusations and assertions that in so many ways have been swirling around. It is not going to distract us from the task at hand on protecting the public and on delivering on the government's agenda. Priti Patel is a strong Home Secretary, as you need to be in this situation, where the Home Office is a very challenging place, but equally with a strong team of civil servants as well, supporting all of us on delivering on that agenda and fundamentally protecting the public. Rachel, you were at Monday's lobby briefing mm -hmm. um, after all this broke. How was that? It was uh, pretty intense for the, for the government's uh, spokesperson. Um, they were asked repeatedly about all of the reports that appeared in the paper at the weekend, um, if the PM had confidence in um, the Home Secretary, if he had confidence in um, Sir Philip Rutnam. Um, and interestingly, he completely backed Priti Patel and then um, when asked to specifically express uh, the, the PM's confidence in the civil servant. He just gave a general, I have confidence in the civil service, which was quite telling, I think. So it seems very much siding with um, his minister. But I guess a couple of general points I would make about the Home Office is that um, it's been a basket case of a department for for years. <laughs> um, I mean, the, there have been several people that have said it should have been scrapped a long time ago and, and brought back round. And, but again, on the same... On the same hand, um, Pre Patel also has a, a bit of a, a reputation for um, diverging <laughs> as a minister. Um, so I guess James would be the interesting person to ask about what's really happening.
Yeah, I mean, you, you only left a couple of weeks ago, James, so you would have been around for a lot of mm. um, what the reports are telling us happened. Mm. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, I think, I mean, number one, obviously, Rachel, you, you were at the, the briefing. I don't know what sense you got of this. You, um, tell me if you think this matches with what they were saying. I think there's a, there's a general sense, whatever side you want to take or you, if you don't want to take a side, that they would like this to go away. Yes. Um, it's, not a fa it's not really conducive to good government. So in that sense, I suppose you don't want to give it too much, too much oxygen. I think on the bullying claims, um, I mean, look, I've worked with... A, I never saw anything like that. I, I, I'd, I mean, it's one of the last things I would ever describe Pretty as a bully. I, I found a, an incredibly considerate and easy to get along with boss, to be honest. Um, what I do find interesting is we've got anonymous... I speak to people at the Home Office. There is no... Never mind an official, there's been no actual complaint of bullying. No-one sent an email or spoken to their line manager and said, I feel bullied. Yeah, that's not happened. That. Not even unofficially. We know that. Not even unofficially, yeah. so far as I know. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've been told by the Home Office. Now, we've had anonymous allegations that she's been bullying. Well, we know... I mean, there's several people been named. I'll, I'll mention one name. I, I don't want to be unfair to because I think he's an absolutely fantastic official. Mark Thompson, who's leaving, he's head of UKVI considered widely in the civil service to be one of the best civil servants in the entire civil service, never mind the Home Office. Had a great relationship with Pretty, um, and I know that we as a team always thought he did a fantastic job. I, I sat in meetings in the first couple of weeks. We knew he was going. He'd gone a couple of weeks before. Um, it had only been decided Pretty would be Home Secretary days before, so his leaving had literally zero... To, that is a false briefing. That is, To be blunt, whoever told them that is a liar. Um, and so we've got that, and then we've seen these anonymous allegations of bullying... No one knows where they're from. They're talked about consistently as if they might have some foundation, no smoke without fire. There's zero evidence apart from someone who won't put their name to it. As I said, I'm willing to put my name to the fact to say I've never seen anything that remotely resembles this, whether it's towards me or someone else. So I, don't, I, I find it somewhat frustrating, in a sense, as being someone that I would describe pretty as a, as a friend, so, that it gets so much air without any evidence whatsoever. So where's it coming from, then? What's... Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't get the... I don't know, is the truth. I don't the, know. The, the, the central thing here is the apparent tension between the permanent secretary and the home secretary. Yeah. And, and the reports that the home secretary wants to get rid of the permanent secretary, so Patel wants to get rid of Rutnam. Yeah. And that actually Downing Street have a wider hit list of permanent secretaries they want to get rid of. Allegedly, yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by that, I don't know, but yeah. The, and, and actually, they took that kind of unprecedented step of issuing a joint statement yeah. at, at the weekend, um, which has been repeated in our August pages today. Of course. Um, but, I mean, what do you make of that? What, what's their relationship like and um, why is there tension? There's definitely tension there, it seems. Well, I don't think it's fair to comment on that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not there now. Yeah. I, I think, uh, as has been reflected by some people this week... For audio listeners, in, James had a nice smile on his face. They're, <laughs> they're, still, they're still in the same office together. They're very senior people in, in, a, part, in a department that's crucial to the functioning of this country's security and immigration and so on. And so I think they need to have a good relationship... Um, so, you know, therefore, I don't, uh, you know, not that anyone cares what I say, I say, but to the extent of which I only recently left, I don't think it'd be fair to me to kind of get into it in any, e either way. That doesn't, don't read anything into that. Um, but I think, you know, I think that's why there is a, a keenness in government to, to draw a line under this, almost to, almost to say, look, rights and wrongs aside, we've got, you, I mean, I think Sir Mark's, uh, Mark Sedwell's statement earlier in the week... To me, I read that pretty clearly as he didn't pick out civil servants, he didn't pick out ministers, he didn't pick out special advisers. He said, all of you guys need to shape up yeah. and get on with your day job. Um, and that's certainly... when I've spoken to people 
um, whether it's in the centre or wherever in the Home Office, I think there's a feeling that like that's quite that's essentially what they want to do now is 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 whatever happened, draw a line under it and just crack on with basically what what the Prime Minister and what Sir Mark wants them to do. It's like a teacher turning up in the playground and you know. Not not well, not knocking sending heads knocking heads yeah. together. That's that's but, a great. What, 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 what's what's strange about? though is why the cabinet secretary felt he had to do that. I mean, you know, like James said earlier, this is a government that's got a huge majority. It's got all the authority it needs in Parliament. It can do anything it likes. So why is it suddenly getting involved in little spats like briefing against permanent secretaries? And it was a briefing against permanent secretary and um, amongst others. Why is that message going out there? Um, it seems so needless. It's like the row with the press, which we've gone over previously, but things have moved on from that. They've worked out that was needless. Why do these needless rows? I can understand there's something fundamental. If, if the permanent secretary is blocking a really major policy, fine. You're within your rights as a minister to say, sorry, you know, I'm the boss, and can we sort this out? And you find ways of doing it. It doesn't sound like there's anything fundamental, unless James can put me right, I mean, unless there's something fundamentally different between what Rutland wants and what the Home Secretary wants. Um, then I don't understand why there's a briefing culture. And let's be honest, Mark said it was right. It's everybody. It's officials, it's SPADs, you know, it's MPs, it's ministers. Um, why he felt the need to do that just seems odd. This is the, exactly the wrong time. You can imagine at the end of May's reign, when you know everything's fractious and you haven't got a majority, why they, this stuff would come out. But you've just started on what is fantastically an amazing platform for, for five years of a government. Why get involved in all this minutiae? That's what I find a bit baffling. The only thing conclusion you come to is if there was something serious, if the Home Secretary was ignoring something, doing something that potentially illegal. That's what civil servants get really upset about. If she was, I don't know if she was, but then, then obviously it's a legitimate source of some kind of um, internal disquiet, and whether it becomes public is another issue. Yeah, James, what do you make of that? Why, why, why are we having these petty spats? It's like you left and it all kicked off. What's going on? <laughs> it, was, it was much better in my day. <laughs> um, Look, I think, um, I guess, I think there's a part of, in terms of what Sir Mark's doing, we've seen this in different areas of government, I think uh, I have a terrible habit of using football analogies, which is why I, should, I could never brief anonymously. <laughs> um, it always gets pinned, pinned to me. He's but, interest. Um, uh, and now I've given everyone else licence to work out. <laughs> but but um, I think kind of Boris almost took over mid-season. You know, he, he had to. You know, they went and got an election and so on. And so, in a sense, those first few months, obviously, they, you know, they got the deal done and so on. But I think there's an element of which, look, I was in there under the May years, and I, you know, I won't pick out any rights or wrongs of individuals. But I think it was quite clear to me, and maybe you guys tell me if you think differently, that there needed to be some, they, there needed to be some discipline brought back into government, right? That's, and that's not to say, like, uh, you know, we, I mean, we had. It's no secret there was a bit of a battle on kind of leave and remain lines, if you like. And I think that um, it's quite right that Downing Street, whether that's the political side or the cabinet secretary, um, take a stand and say that we can't have this anymore. So I do think it's unsurprising to me that following the, the election, you're going to see some instances where things happen and they come down pretty hard. Um, and they say, look, we're just not going to tolerate that, to set the scene. Because the difference is, before, when you've got these small majorities or hung parliaments, we don't know if there's going to be an election in 12, 18 months. Well, I think it's pretty certain we ain't going to have an election until very close to the five-year term. Um, and so it, I think, in a sense, there's a setting your stall out moment at the moment and drawing a line under the past, say, like, look, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. That I get. What I don't get is, is 
briefings against civil servants if they don't need to be done. That's what I don't get. It's like, it's, it's all sides. It's not just a reaction. It's not just putting your foot down. It's kind of like, well, we might try and undermine him or her or whatever. And I, I just seems, it seems a bit needless. I mean, ha but I think the point is there has been briefing against... Yeah. Against politicians as well. Oh yeah, yeah. From and, it, and yeah. I, I don't know who that is. So I don't think, in a sense, everyone's talked about Sir Philip, and we don't know if Sir Philip's behind any of this. Is the truth because you know they're anonymous briefings. But what I think when I read those stories, having worked in the Home Office, I don't see how someone who's not in the civil service knows that. Yeah. So right. I, I, I don't. I don't. I think it's. It could be very well. Um, as I said about the kind of eventual bullying allegations. Again, people saying, "Oh, this has got to be Sir Philip." We've no idea if that's true. Is that is that you know? Or yeah. There's only two or three people who know. Yeah. Um, but I, what is true is there has been civil service briefings. I think uh, uh, you know, in my opinion, against elected politicians. And but either way, that's unhelpful. I agree. And I think that's why Sir Mark's statement made no, didn't single them out and specifically yeah. said all three of these groups need to sort yeah. their yeah. stuff out, if you like. Well, the tensions of a new government are being felt across Whitehall and nothing highlighted it more than Sajid Javid quitting the role of Chancellor after Dominic Cummings demanded control of his advisers. Uh, Javid's not gone quietly, using a resignation speech in the Commons to take a swipe at both Johnson and his most senior adviser. Let's have a listen. It has always been the case that advisers advise, ministers decide and ministers decide on their advisers. I couldn't see why the Treasury, with the vital role that it plays, should be the exception to that. A Chancellor, like all Cabinet Ministers, has to be able to give candid advice to a Prime Minister so he is speaking truth to power. I believe that the arrangement proposed would significantly inhibit that, and it would not have been in the national interest. Paul, you said last, well, a couple of weeks ago when we last on the podcast that Javin needed to take a stand, now he's gone and he has. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I, he took my advice. I said he needs to come out and be ballsy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, that I mean, Salma was with us on that podcast yeah. and I think she kind of agreed that, you know, he needed to make a stand. He needed to say, look, I'm my own man. Uh, he needed to basically kind of grow up as a politician in a way. He did a bit, a lot of that during the, during the leadership campaign, impressed people towards the end of it. Obviously, you know, it didn't work. But he, he, he was one of the people who came out of that leadership contest looking better than he had beforehand. And you can't say that for all of them. Uh, maybe Dominic Raab in particular, for example. Um, uh, and I thought that, that it was perfectly pitched, actually, that statement, personal statement this week, because... It, it definitely did what I wrote about, which was it, it's the shit sandwich. You know, it did. It, it definitely it started off by saying, look, this self-deprecating stuff about, look, I'm totally on board with the government. Then he had the d difficult message in the bit middle. And then at the end, he said, how wonderful the government was and I wish you well. Um, but it's the middle bit that really mattered because I thought that was really quite well crafted. It didn't sound pompous. It could have it could have sounded overly pompous and out of touch, which I'm sure a lot of his critics would say, you know, why are you quitting over a few special advisers? And he, man and he managed to broaden it out without sounding pompous and saying, actually, I think it's in the national interest you have people who give honest, frank advice 
And that's not just special advisors, that's institutions, whether it's the Office of Budget Responsibility and the Treasury. And I think he made a really good point about the Office of Budget Responsibility because there's a lot, again, a lot of rumours about whether or not that's going to be scrapped and replaced. Um, and, you know, the Bank of England was in there as well. So he was basically saying you have these institutions and as a Tory, that's what's clever about it, as a Tory, you, you believe that no one has a monopoly of wisdom. And that's why you need a plurality of voices and checks and balances. And it was a good argument to make within its own terms for the Tory party, for that Tory, Tory audience. So I thought it worked on lots of levels. It also means that actually the way in which he delivered it meant that he didn't, he, he obviously went more for Dominic Cummings than the Prime Minister, uh, while leaving the Prime Minister under no doubt, look, you mess around with these rules and, and sound money and Tory principles on, on finance at your peril. So I thought all in all, it worked really, really well. Uh, and actually, I was pleasantly surprised. It's so nice to have a politician tell you, tell you what they think. We haven't of seen one of those sort of traditional, it. what are they call those resignation statements? Personal statements. Personal yeah. stuff. We haven't seen that really for a while. Not for a while, no. Yeah. And we've got Andrea Ledsom's to come, don't forget. Apparently, hers was due to be yesterday. Yeah. And she's postponed it. And good news, I don't, know, fun, I don't I know how spiky that's going to be. Yeah. But, you know, it's like all politicians. Jack Straw is a classic example. Only after leaving office does he say things that are actually sparky and controversial. Mm. Um, famously, you know, he only then started saying, actually, we should do a bit more about Palestinian rights, only after he left government. And there's a, this wave after wave of former ministers who only suddenly define, find their courage after they've left office. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say a bit about, about Sajid Javid, although while he was in office, he was quite spiky for Theresa May, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, what do you think Javid's up to? Um, uh, it was interesting what we were talking about before, about what Boris Johnson's doing with this, with this current like period in time he's kind of like changing the conservative brand entirely to being anti-establishment to kind of taking on people like the cbi to kind of be not a traditional conservative in a lot of ways and potentially hang on to those red wall seats in a few years time i think um sajid javid is kind of perhaps sticking up for um the traditional conservative which is kind of strong on fiscal responsibility it's kind of like an interesting grouping where he's sitting now it's kind of he's next to people like damien green who've already said to the pm stop the bbc bashing you know the those kind of one nation conservatives mm -hmm. he's there with uh, robert helfen who's already spoken out quite strongly against people like toby young when they've written about eugenicists in the past um theresa may there who we also kind of name checked in his speech so i think he's kind of going to be a traditional conservative and then we're going to hear more about fiscal responsibility from him i think as we said on that podcast two weeks ago as well yeah he's taking he's listening to common people clearly he just needs access to your podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. um coming seems to be causing all sorts of problems for the government james I mean, or do you think do, some people say he's acting as a lightning rod which is very useful for boris johnson mm. whereas others say He's causing un unnecessary headlines and diverting attention to away from what the government should be talking I th about. I mean, I think having worked with Dom, I think um, he's quite happy to operate as lightning mode. I mean, if you remember, obviously wasn't kind of publicised, but I think it found its way into a book or two. The speech that he gave on the evening that we won, um, he pointedly said, "I mean, this is not true because he had, I think, him and Paul Stevenson in particular, we wouldn't we wouldn't have won the campaign without them." I think. If you look politically and publicly, Michael and Boris, um, if you take away those two people, I think you lose a hell of a lot from that. Public side of the campaign, I think inside the campaign, you take away Paul or, or Dom and, 
and it's a, it's a different campaign entirely. Vote leave, not the December election for... Vote yeah. leave, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, but he said in that speech, you know, all, all, he said, all I did is keep people off your backs. And I think it's part of the way that's how he sees his job, um, which is he's quite happy if uh, you guys or whoever it is are attacking him, he, he, you know, he can deal with it. And it lets the PM or whoever else or the Home Secretary get on with doing their jobs. And I, so... Um, you know, I haven't spoken to him recently about anything like that, but I, I, my experience of him, certainly on Vote Leave in particular, when I worked closest with him, was that he definitely saw part of his role as just letting you get on with what you're doing. Like, you know, I could focus on the bit that I did, which was dealing with businesses and regional press and whatever and, and whoever else it was. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like he's maybe not trying to distract from stories in the press or to, or, or to keep stories out of the press. He's, he's actually saying, well, fill the press with stuff about me so that you yeah. can just, you know... It's partly the case that, like, I think, you know, I don't know this, but I would suspect I think that it's partly an element of, like, oh, it's a bad story. I will just say I did it. Or just yeah. say it was involved yeah. in me. So it's, I, I think it's less... There's a perception almost that people are putting things out all the time. I think part of it is, like, there's a bad story. It's like, well, I'll just say I did it. Because um, uh, I think... There's, the, you know, the press, if you like, they've got their bad guy. You know, they've got a caricature. One of the things I learned, I remember first going to meet Dom. And I'd really, I've all, I'd always wanted to work on an election campaign. And a mate of mine said, look, um, I think it was after, I think the, the Conservatives had won the election in the manifesto, obviously, was the referendum, and said, I think Dominic's going to have a role in this. I'll introduce you. I know you've always wanted to work on a campaign. And I went into a, a place in Westminster... And I remember coming back and saying, apart from, like, the fact that he was, he'd just got off his bike and he was wearing a kind of... Um, maybe shabby's unfair, but a kind of plain white T-shirt. I said, apart, apart from that caricature of his dress sense, um, he didn't match the guy I'd read about. It was nothing like him, you know, softly spoken, um, interested in you, and what have you been doing, kind of, like, you know, basically a nice... And in, in terms of one-to-one, -one, a pretty ordinary guy... Um, and, I, and I remember this when you go through and you read about people in the press, people that work for Theresa May or whoever else, and I always have a question mark about what, what is described in that because I've been through it where I've read about someone, met them, worked with them, and it doesn't really bear that much resemblance to the person that I know. Um, and I don't, you know, that's the way things are. We, you know, we, we, we work some, sometimes some good degree on caricatures, but I think part of it is that is is, is, is happy to, to be a lightning rod. And so... That almost kind of gains in it, so kind of you know, it kind of snowballs in a sense. But is it, is it the really interesting thing is this idea about treating government as if you're still in campaign mode rather than government mode? And it's it's for Dom. It seems as though actually he just can't switch off that campaign mode and never will. In other words, when he was at DFE, he was like a restless. There was a restlessness about driving reform, and you do need that in some, in some government departments, obviously, because it's not just civil servants who love inertia. It's politicians like it. Um, the system likes it. And people who smash it up, you know, obviously they're going to come up against opposition. But it's as if it's the limits of that sort of creative destruction as well that he sometimes just seems to sort of forget about. And it's like you, you, you'll, you'll be more effective in driving through your reform if you do it in a slightly different way. And it's like no one sat him down and said, actually, don't, you don't have to be a bull in a china shop. You can actually be, you know, a thoroughbred horse, racehorse, and you can go that way instead of going that way to get to where you want. But isn't it a, isn't it a case that we always need a Svengali? Uh, we always have an Alistair Campbell, you know, even for about... Brown had his own, Charlie Whelan and then and Damien McBride, all, you know, by reputation, great in their own way. But we almost always need that advisor, you know, to kind of 
pin whatever it is on as being part of the narrative. Do you think he's, he's going to be around for a while? Because he's getting tipped by a lot of people for, to go within months. I would be shocked if that happened. Really? You think he's um, there for the duration? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, the, uh, you know, I think the Prime Minister himself has, himself has done a great job. But also, he came in... Remember at the time, no-one's going to change this deal. How many times have we hear that? This deal's never going to change. The deal's never going to change. Well, the deal, the deal got changed. People can argue about the extent of it, but when the arguments were being made, no-one said, the deal, oh, the deal might be tweaked. They said, you cannot change this deal. The EU have been clear. Now, is it arguable that the deal changed? Then it was uh, getting an election. Well, everyone said, oh, I don't know if you can get an election for this parliament. We got an election. Then it's like, well, how close will this election be? He's got a majority of 80. Now, if I'm the Prime Minister, um, I don't know him, I met him a couple of times, don't know him well, but I'm going to look at this and think, well, all these people are saying all these things about this guy, but if I look back over the last three... This is not, this is not over five years, this is over six months, I'm going to think, this guy seems to get... Um, you, could, you could slightly change the phrase from get Brexit done to get something else done. You know, it's time to get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say things done, so we don't have to bleep anything out. <laughs> but this guy gets stuff done. It's an adult show. Uh, get, he gets shit done, <laughs> let's say that. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll, if, I'm, if I'm, you know, run, running a department or running the country as the Prime Minister is, I want someone like that about, you know? And I think um, it's... Un whatever you think of him, it's undeniable, vote leave campaign, campaigns before that, that, that Dom gets, gets shit done. Right. Fitting moment to move on to the quiz. Let's get Ooh. that shit done. Um, I wasn't warned about this. Can you stop swearing? Sorry, Rachel. Uh, in a week where there's been a frankly ludicrous storm over Chancellor Rishi Sunak's choice of tea, this week's quiz is all about food and politicians. Uh, there's no kind of formula, just pipe up with the answer if you know it. Um, so, uh, what were Alistair Darling and his Treasury team eating as they figured out the ba bailout for British banks during the pizza crisis? No. Wasn't it pizza? No. I'm sure they got loads of pizza in that weekend. Nope. What was I've the takeaway? No it was definitely a takeaway, but what it was, was it? It was a takeaway. Does anyone have... I mean, it's fairly limited. Chinese curry? Chinese. Yes. Rachel. Take a curry from uh, Gandhi's restaurant in oh. Kennington. Ah. Not, not ah. Tandoori, which is the famous one that Ken Clark and everyone go to. Ah. Uh, and it ended up being dubbed, at least by Andy Grice and the Independent, the Balti Bailout. Ah, right. <laughs> There's the Balti plot with Tom Watson, I remember that. Right. I always wonder if people pick... If the journalist's saying, like, it'd be really helpful if you could just pick this food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, no, go home. Alliterative food. What, <laughs> what did you have? No, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, you had a... Well, not this question, but the next one okay. might. <laughs> Touch on that as well. Uh, it, next question. Uh, David Cameron caused controversy at a barbecue in 2015. Why? He ate... Did he eat, a, with a knife and fork, a, 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 a burger? Hot dog. Fork? Yeah. Hot dog. Hot you can dog. both have a point. Ah, yeah. uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah, that. This yeah, is yeah. why he never won the Red Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like the other sausage and, and some other salad and stuff. It was the sausage was in, in its dog, uh, in its bun. And, and yeah, it's, it's odd. <laughs> um, so everyone's level, it's a tiebreaker, whoever can get this. Oh. So, Tory cabinet Brexiteers famously plotted against Theresa May as part of a so-called pizza club. Oh, right. But at their first reported meeting, which was October 2018, who was the Remainer in attendance? Ooh. Is it Saj? No. no. That's a really good one. Ah, mm. Hancock? No. Are you sure? I would have been, out, I would have been near that meeting. Uh, who would have been that? Michael, Andrea? Ledson, yeah. AG. AG um, was the lever, wasn't he? No, it would have been uh, Jeffrey Cox. Cox was a lever, wasn't it? Was Cox a lever during the referendum? 
I think yeah, so, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Uh, General... Oh, God, it was in Ledsom's office, wasn't it? Yeah. She was leader of the house. Wait, wait. No, no. Oh, God, this is going to kill me. <laughs> Can't we have one clue? <laughs> yeah, give us a clue. It's, Given the, time it's a Remainer. Is it a man or a woman? It's a man and it's a Remainer. Jeremy Hunt? Yes! Oh, oh, oh out of the bag. Won the quiz. Out of the bag. Jeremy Hunt. According to your Wait, own it? report, I took this information from. Yeah, that's well, why I remember it. Well now. done. Somewhere at the yeah. back of my brain. Did they actually get... They didn't... Who was not a fan of pizza in that club? Um, did they always get pizza? They didn't always get I, pizza, I, did I, they? I remember... Uh, I don't know if it's too much going into Go things. <laughs> I remember... So, I remember going to the office, um, obviously, at the time I was special advisor for Michael, and I think there was someone there, and they mentioned this, and I, and I remember saying, I, I got briefed that. <laughs> it's such a good, good colour. <laughs> um, I think that was the only meeting they had pizza at. There was a series okay. of meetings. Um, I remember one when there was, I think you can look it up, but I, I can't remember. So when it, there was, a, there was a, a cabinet minister who turned up with like, bottles of champagne. Um, which I found quite amusing. <laughs> but um, there was a series of them. I think that's the only one that I remember them having food at. But, I mean, it worked so, it worked so well, the pizza club oh, or whatever. Right. Yeah, pizza yeah. plotters, again. Pizza plotters, like yeah, kind of yeah. Camaraderie. Right, unfortunately... Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Donald Trump having a little trouble with his pronunciation on his visit to India this week. Oh, God, yeah. Where your people cheer on some of the world's greatest cricket players from Suchin Tendulkar to Virat Kohli. <laughs>